Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something. Um, I'm a big hockey fan. And what stinks is the uh, Flyers aren't going to make the playoffs this year. And I don't think the Kings are either. And it's I love playoff hockey. But when you don't have a team to root for, you just sit there and go, what the hell? And growing up, I mean, I was a huge Flyers fan. And the last few years, they've done okay. They've done bad. But... At least I got to see them, and the Kings have done good in the last few years, but the Kings were on the verge, so it just makes it, when you have two teams you root for, and neither of them will be on, it sucks for you. And the reason I'm talking about hockey is my, my guest today is actually, he uh, posted a picture uh, a few weeks, like I think earlier this week, of the uh, an old the Buffalo uh, Sabres line called the French Connection. It was uh, Rene Robert, Gilbert Perrault, and Rick Martin. And I remember loving them, but at the same time, I was against them because the Flyers had the LCB line of uh, Reggie Leach, Bill Barber, and Bobby Clark. And my guest is Nick Bakai. How you doing, Nick? Uh, great. I love what you're invoking already. Um, we had a, a great Stanley Cup final of that era. Uh, Flyers won. Uh, Buffalo, of course, championship-free to this day and proud of it. But I remember um, the one game that was where the fog covered the rink in Buffalo at Memorial Auditorium. That and was big. and Crazy. Then, and, and a bat. The, the bat. The yeah. bat. And I think it was Wayne, not Wayne Cashman, he was a Bruin. It was uh, Larry, uh, Larry Hillman, okay. I think, who killed the bat with his stick. But it was one of these old municipal, old school indoor uh, arenas and it, you know when they tore it down finally i think that you know they unleashed a legion of rats into the world you know but it was a great old barn well i remember from that series because i was a big hockey fan and i remember watching it and it's i don't know why it's stuck in my head but don loose yeah who was probably one of the ugliest hockey players ever <laughs> i mean he sort of looked like a ghoul like he had that hair a little big birdish yeah, yeah. i remember him breaking having a breakaway down the side and bernie prant came out of the net and checked him right near the blue line and everyone's like oh my god and i remember that turned the series around and it was in buffalo yeah everyone in buffalo was pissed well it was a clean play but yeah. i mean the, the flyers weren't clean but that that was a clean play so i still remember that and i still remember that it was such a good team because i remember the the french connection make hockey cards and they had like the french connection card they had yeah. a picture of each of them yeah they were really incredibly electric and uh it, hockey was so much more wide open a lot less checking than and you know rink wide ride wide rushes and amazing plays it's funny you mentioned bill barber too because uh at around that time, I, you know, I, I was playing hockey too, and a couple of summers I went to hockey camp in Orillia, Ontario. Okay, place it was Bobby Orr's, Bobby Orr, Mike Walton, Mike Walton, a very obscure Maple Leaf at the time, but they had this great camp, and pros would go. This is back when they weren't making big bucks, so guys would come in and do like three weeks of teaching at this little camp in near a lake in Ontario, and Bill Barber was one of the guys, and the thing about Barber was, you know, they'd all scrimmage with you, and that was cool, and Bobby Orr, you'd be on the ice with Bobby Orr, and they'd take it easy on you. You're, you're 12. Bill Barber had one gear, and he <laughs> he would run down that, he would rush that rink like he was playing in the NHL, and little children would just be bouncing off of him. You know, just, he just, you know, those, there's those certain guys, the competitive gear, there's only one gear, it's, you know? He could not ease up for the kids. And you know what's funny? We don't, we don't know, we don't recognize how much no, not the no money. They made hardly any money. Like I remember, there was yeah. there's a guy named Lou Morrison who played for many years. And there's a bar in Stone Harbor, New Jersey, the beach I would go to in college. And Lou Morrison bartended <laughs> at this place called Fred's, and everyone knew him. And he was just yeah. retired, and he it wasn't now where they make the and he played for like. 10 or 12 years, yep. it was just crazy back then. No, especially in hockey, the salaries were really low. But, you know, people don't know that era. Like, you know, at the 
peak of their careers, Yogi Berra and Whitey Ford, they sold suits in the offseason in some place in Hoboken. You know, it's just different days. And Bradshaw, they always said, made more in that hair replacement commercial that used to be in the magazines <laughs> than he made playing football. And it was a stupid little ad like in the back of Sporting News and yeah. had his picture with the thing and he made more money doing that. Wow. So, so you grew up in Buffalo. You're, you're a big sports fan. Sure. Now, how did you bridge from sports and then getting into comedy? Because you played sports. You said you played hockey when you were younger. Yeah. And then, I mean, did you also love comedy as you were watching sports? You know, I, I, yeah, it was, you know, it's funny. My early ambition was to be an actor, not a comedian. Um, but, you know, I grew up playing sports. And Buffalo's a hardcore sports town. I loved it. And then, you know, I, I went off and I trained as an actor. And I spent a lot of rough years in New York once in a while getting gigs and it all changed when I started to write for the National Lampoon. I had a guy I knew who worked there, and uh, and I, I just took him up on an offer to write le- those fake letters to the editor. That's how you always cut your teeth at the Lampoon, and that's where everything changed for me because I realized, well, I, I'm not going. I don't think I'm going to be Hamlet. So let's right. let, let, let's <laughs> <laughs> let's circle the wagons here and figure out something else. And I found it was so radically different if you could write something funny. It's like being a left-handed pitcher. Everybody needs you, as opposed to being one of a thousand 24-year-old actors, you know? Um, And so from there, that led me to getting work at the earliest incarnation of what is now um, Comedy Central. Now, as a kid, though, did you want to get into acting? I mean, what made, what at what age did you decide you wanted to follow this acting dream? Were you a young kid, or I mean, what at what point did that I happen? was always a ham, you okay. know, and I was always in plays. And at a certain point in high school, I realized I was at least on that level. I think I'm pretty good at this, and so I went on and studied in undergrad, and I actually went to grad school in an MFA acting program at SMU down in Dallas, which, believe it or not, at the time was a pretty well respected program. Um, and so, you know, I poured everything that I used to pour into sports into learning how to do that and learning that craft. And it was kind of an interesting situation. It was part of this thing called the League of Professional Theater Training Schools or whatever. And the ones you've heard of, the famous ones like Yale and Juilliard, were in this thing with a bunch of ones you haven't heard of. At that time, it's like the University of Washington, SMU, Carnegie Mellon, people have heard of, but you know, Wisconsin. Carnegie Mellon's huge. Like, I've got a lot yeah. of guests that have come on and said they went to Carnegie Mellon. And I always thought of it as it was a very a, a engineering school. Yeah. And then everyone, they have this like amazing acting program. Huge theater school, and, and forever, too. And so, what you do is you do two years of training, and then as you were about to graduate, uh, you'd go to New York and go to the theater at Juilliard and do a scene and a monologue for a theater filled with casting directors, agents. I mean, it, you know how that whole thing of like go to New York and beat the streets. And, you know, I would never have been able to pull that off. I didn't have that kind of uh, stick to itness. You know, I wouldn't. Have, I'm not that self-starting. You know, but I got to showcase what I do for a, a, an audience of professionals, and I came out of it with an agent and moved to New York and started. You know, I had a toehold. And then I did about five years of like, you know, regional theater and occasional commercials, and it was tough. It was scratching, you know, and it just clearly wasn't exactly the pocket for me. And so your friend got you into the National Lampoon to write yep, a gig? Yep. And I took, by the time, six months in, I was on, um, you know, on the front page as a contributing editor. And, and that led my portfolio of that material. It just changed my life to be able to self start and create things. And that portfolio is what caught Alan's, Alan Havy's eye, 
and Eddie Gorodetsky's eye when they were staffing writers for the dawn of what was then called the Comedy Channel. Um, and it, it, it's long enough ago, but there were it's early cable, and both Viacom and Time Warner HBO, which were very different companies, thought, well, we should do a 24-hour comedy network. So they launched two, and the cable operators said, we're not willing to give you two slots. You guys have to merge. And so over the course of about four years, it went from Comedy Channel and Ha, which was the uh, Viacom one, uh, and into Comedy Central, which was this weird merge of these two very different corporate cultures. But um, it was the time of my life. I did uh, Alan's show. Well, night after night. Night after night. I remember he always yeah. wore cool shirts. I, yeah. I remember he said, yeah, it's like, he had cool, I was because he was on the show once. Alan said, had a rack cool. of shirts. Yeah, just like cool. Like there was back when that like yeah. that loud, the squeak. I don't know. It was just like, like Genera was the brand. I don't even remember the brand called Genera. <laughs> but I was like, I always sit there at home and I'm like, and he had like, cool hair. Long uh, hair. Swept back the cool shirts, yeah. and we were on it late at night. And it was—it's funny—we shot the show uh, live to tape in a little studio at 10 a.m. But it was a late night vibe, and it was—you know—they were so busy trying to sell the channel to cable operators that if we didn't burn the studio down, they were like, "Great, keep going," you know. So we were pretty unmanaged, and um, there was a really interesting influx of talent and people who I've worked with ever since, you know, the Higgins Boys and Gruber, um, John Stewart was there doing, hosting a show called Short Attention Span Theater. I mean, there, there a lot of, Michael Patrick King, a lot of writing talent, there, a lot of people came out of there, but this is where we all cut our teeth on TV. And during that time, um, I co-created a show called Sports Monster, which was a parody of Sports Center, And that's where my whole sports... Uh, actual doing pieces on professional sports uh, happened because it started there and it caught the attention of John Walsh at ESPN right when they were launching ESPN2 or the deuce, as we used to call it, right? When Keith Oberman <laughs> was in leather, you remember those days? I remember. It's so funny. Like the, and anyone who follows sports remembers like one of the original deuce moments was when Chris uh, Jim Everett. Went after Jim Rome. And By the way, I was in the studio right after that because they shot at a place called Production Group right down on Vine. Okay, it's real hole, you know. Um, but you know they would have a satellite feed out of there, and they would do Rome show live. And then they'd still have a window for the satellite. So I would go in and piggyback that signal after his show to do my little tail of the tapes or my little three minute segments, and they'd shoot it off to Bristol and then edit it there. Uh, and I was in after Rome the night. <laughs> that Jim Everett turned the table over on him. And it was like I came in and there was just an energy that was so off. <laughs> I felt like I, there was smoke in the play. I was like, wow, what happened? And I, I soon heard. And then, of course, that clip is infamous. But, oh, those were the days, man. So the sports machine. Yeah, sports monster. Sports monster. Now, now, did, did you do that because did you incorporate your love of sports in yeah. that? Yeah, it was all. Uh, it was so much fun. And during the lampoon time, I started to play with some sports comedy and little pieces I wrote for that, and it really wet my appetite for it. And this whole show was great because uh, it was a half hour, and um, it was uh, produced by Scott Carter, who's been producing Bill Maher's stuff forever, and. My co-hosts were Joe Bolster and John Heyman, who were, you know, comics of that day. And we just, you know, we, we had to have all... The funniest thing is, you know, you're sort of through the looking glass and you can't believe they're letting you, 
You know, like going to uh, batting practice at Yankee Stadium and interviewing players with your funny little Comedy Central sign on the mic. And, you know, they're actually talking to you and you're, you're having this out-of-body experience initially of like, what the hell? They're letting me do this, you know? And, uh, and from there, it really run. And then, you know, I did a ton of stuff for ESPN over the years. and. Well, what's that like working with ESPN? Because ESPN has grown so much. Yeah. It's so funny. I mean, you sit there, and now it's like I have um, – I switched a while ago to AT&T U-verse. And so you go down the thing, and you have ESPN, ESPN College, ESPN2. Yeah. ESPN U, yeah. Uh, and it's great because I, I always like um, – I like I love pardon the interruption. I love sure. Tony Kornheiser and Wilborn. Yeah. And I always know when I leave here, I get home, and I miss the two, but then they play it again at 3, yeah. at 3.30, and it's just good. But it's grown so much. And you were sort of – I mean, they used to have a – do you remember the ESPN's lighter sides of sports? Golly, yeah. I mean, that was really um, – what Sports Monster was, if I may – um, up until then, sports humor was the lighter side of sports, or, you know, Jay Johnstone giving right. the guy a hot foot in the dugout, you know? And there really was no satirical slant, no nothing very intelligent going on. Um, maybe it's Marv Albert on Letterman with the funny highlights, which was great. But, you know, we were the first show to sort of take a deeper attack on it, and it, it opened up a whole world for me. And, yeah, it was my way of... You know, being able to sort of funnel my emotions and my attitudes about sports into something comedic. And I was smart enough to know that if I just kept the highlights married into anything I did, it would fit. Because the one thing I got really early on is that people are looking at ESPN for highlights. It's evolved into more things than now. But at that point, it was just it was sports center. So if I'm delivering you some good clips here, I'm not going to interrupt the flow too much. Okay, so uh, so you started doing that. Now, sports, I mean, so you, you, it got to be your love of sports and yep. things. So that must yeah. have been great for you. Now, now, did you do stand-up at all? No, I never okay, did. Because I know I thought you I thought you were involved in that, because you, know, you knew Heyman and stuff like that. Yeah, I all, uh, most of those guys I all knew from the studio down on 23rd Street for Comedy Channel. And I got to know a whole generation of those guys. But I never did. I, I was a theater actor and, you know, try, occasionally a little TV. And simultaneous with that writing for the Lampoon. So my whole voice came out of that experience. And then... Being at the channel in the old days, it was like doing TV in the 50s. You know, like a, we had to do five shows a week on night after night. And the original setup was you had a host, a producer, a writer, and a PA. Now, do five shows a week. Okay. So if you had any skills, great, you're segment eight. You know, it's like it literally, you know, you, if you could perform. And I, I ended up finding a lot of opportunities to do characters, do on-camera stuff. But it was all hands on deck. we got to cut the break. We'll be back in just a few. I want to talk more. I want to talk more because I know you wrote for Dennis Miller and Living Color. You've really had a great diversity of writing for, like, sports and, like, things we all love. What guy doesn't love sports and comedy? You can't beat that. Anyway, we'll be back, people. Uh, and your, your Twitter is... Uh, and, and at Nick Bakai number four real and follow him and follow me at Cooper Talk we'll be back in just a few and the thick We all like speaking rodents to entertain and educate our kids. And now with Jerry Gerbil, the kids have someone they can really relate to. Kids, come and play. I've got puppies to show you. Yay, Jerry's speaking rodent. Go on, kids, have fun. I know it's safe. Jerry's wearing a latex bodysuit. See you later, Mom. We're off to have fun with strangers. Glory, hope, money's worth it. 
ride the log flume. Live the adventure of the flaming screen machine. Glory Hole Theme Park. Glory Hole. Open every day till 3 a.m. Come live the mystery. Visit picketsprints.com. Yeah, picketsprints.com. You love every T-shirt that you'll see, and the shipping's always free. P-I-C-K-I-T-S, P-R-I-N-T-S. Find your new favorite shirt, you can't go wrong, at picketsprints.com. Glastic Water Bottle, a shatterproof glass water bottle. It's great for any liquid because everything tastes best in glass. A leak-proof lid you can close and toss on the couch without worry. Chances are it won't ever break, but if it does, no worries. The glass is safely contained inside a protective outer shell so you won't have a dangerous mess to clean up. You can safely remove the broken glass and get replacements. Go to GlasticWaterBottle.com to get your very own Glastic Bottle today. That's GlasticWaterBottle.com. G-L-A-S-S-T-I-C WaterBottle.com. What are you waiting for? If you're looking for a way to advertise your business fast and affordably, go to FlyerStudios.com and get full-color business cards and postcards free with a 24- to 48-hour turnaround nationwide. All you have to do is log on to FlyerStudios.com, browse our categories, and click on free products. We also offer affordable high-end graphic designs, club flyers, vinyl banners, brochures, posters, CD inserts, and much more. It's all possible at FlyerStudios.com, the fastest, most affordable way to advertise your business. Welcome back to Cooper Talk. Is that new music going? Look at wow. that, man. I feel I feel like, you know, it's like it's like Guns N' Roses is playing right here on the Slash. It doesn't have his hat on. He's doing it. <laughs> anyway, we're here with Nick Bakai talking uh, his great writing career and sports, being a big sports follower. So you, you were doing the ESPN stuff. Now, mm-hmm. how did you end up starting to write for Dennis Miller? How did that how did that come about? Dennis, you know, when I was doing Night After Night, the uh, cha- the Comedy Channel was not in a ton of homes. It was in like you know, 10 million homes, which is nothing for a network. They were still trying to grow the thing. But, I, you know, I, I happened to be on whatever cable system Dennis was on. And he was getting ready to leave SNL. And he'd been watching the show. And it was the strangest thing. Uh, HBO and Comedy Channel. And they did this concert in Central Park with Paul Simon. And, and Dennis was doing little interstitials sort of hosting in between uh, performances and acts and I got invited there with my girlfriend at the time my wife Robin and just to go and be backstage which was cool and I did that and I ran into Dennis there and he went Bacang. and I was like wow what, what you know me yeah like your stuff I'm gonna be doing a show might need you to be the Ed M so from there I was like oh that's interesting my deal was coming up and um, there was a little sense of writing on the wall too that um, there was going. They're going to take a broom to a lot of the stuff we had done for this newer channel. You know, it's time to go west and um, go where they really make TV on a level where you might be able to make a true living at it. And he he offered me his sidekick and writing gig, and so I came out here with the job of being his announcer and a writer and sidekick on the short-lived original Tribune syndicated Dennis Miller talk. Okay, that was, was Cesario not a staff or no? Nope, okay. but it was a good staff. Everyone went on. Kevin Rooney, Max Muchnick, and David Cohen, Mark Brazil, who created the 70s right. show. I'd go on and on. 
Um, great staff. Brazil was on. He had said a story. And when he'd also written for another show where, he, or no, Jeff Stilson said about some of the writing staffs back then. When he wrote for the Chris Rock show, like everyone, yeah. like it was Louis C.K. and Sarah Silverman. And Absolutely. All the writing staffs back then were just strong. Like they're all, like all of you guys have just kept working. A lot of times you hear the you know, writers, they just disappear. But it I seems know. like all you guys, was it just, did you think you were edgier or were you smarter? Or what, what made you have resilience and stay in the business? Well, a lot of those guys were stand-ups on that staff. And Dennis, had, like they'd open for Dennis and he took notes. So he knew they could write in his voice. Um, you know, I started out being really, uh, I guess it was edgy. You know, I was very, you know, writing for Dennis is such a specific, rich voice to write for. Aggressive, though, you know. Um, and a lot of the sports stuff I did early on was aggressively critical. And it's funny, I've moved on to a whole different world now. Um, but as a young man, there's a lot of anger. There are all those years you were frustrated that, you know, why is this asshole getting a break and I'm not, you know. And you just, uh, when you finally get your break, you, you're cup is just brimming over with venom right so you know it was just and it was kind of the tone of the day too it was a real mean-spirited humor era um not self-loathing but outward loathing um and so and and i took to that real easy and um you know it, it was kind of a natural fit and over the years I just, you know, my career has taken me so far away from that. You know, I went from there to in living color. What was that like? I mean, because that, you know, that was, was that in the early years of it? No, I was there for the last year. So it probably had to be a lot, a different feeling because most of the people were gone probably or. All the Wayans were gone. Okay. So it's a completely different world um, culturally. And, you know, there were, the writing stories on that thing were infamous. That people have to go in and, you know, pitch five sketches every Monday to Keenan, who'd be like wearing sunglasses and it's like a parole board hearing, you know, just, uh, <laughs> you know, not fun. Um, but I had a great year. Um, I ended up being in a lot of sketches. I was the host of these dirty dozens, these your mama joke sketches. And I had an office with Jim Carrey that year, although that was the year that Jim was uh, shooting. Uh, Ace Ventura and The Mask. So he was when he come in, we would just pile in ten sketches, and he'd go back on location. And that was the year that he became the biggest movie star in the world. That's crazy. Yeah. It's just so it's such a different time. Now from that, then you ended up uh, with Sabrina. Yeah. Now, now you did voiceovers for that too, or you acted, or you did, and you wrote for it. I wrote for it. You know, it was that it was that moment where. You have one of those kitchen table talks where your wife kind of sits you down and says, is this going to be the way, you know, every year we're swinging for a new vine and we have no idea. And I had resisted writing on sitcoms. Why? I just didn't like them. You know, it was not my thing. Um, I thought they were just, especially in that era, they were atrocious. You know, they were those horrible different world. I mean, you know, it, it, people can say they're always atrocious, but there are levels, man. And it was just, I would, I would look at that and say, I can't imagine writing a full house. I, you know, I wouldn't know what the hell to do with that. That's what's amazing. Like they're, they're saying, you know, on Netflix, they're saying how there's going to be a the, the Full yeah, House. Like, know, and everyone's going crazy. I'm thinking, oh, yeah. I'm like, well, you know, we you know what we knew Full House as. We all liked, uh, we all like. I had hair like Dave Coulier. I'd call my hair back then the Coulier. Like I had the hair <laughs> like that. And there was like you sit there and you liked. Oh yeah, John Stamos dressed cool. And that's all you saw. You go, you watch the show. And go, hey, you know, the chicks like Stamos. What can we wear that right. that you know that they'll think we're like Stamos? And we'll do the cut it out. But you're right. It's like people I know. No one ever sits there and goes. Man, yeah. hey, 
Netflix is going to have old Full House. Let's go watch it. No one did that. Well, the weird thing is that Netflix has all sorts of data that no one else has. So there's going to, if there's a demand for it, or they wouldn't do it. Oh, no, it's crazy. But on the other level, um, you know, I was just that. I wasn't that guy. I was, I was Mr. Hipster, you know. And but I, you know, it was time to sort of grow up and be a man. And so I opened my mind and I talked to my manager at the time and I said, "Could you look into a, you know sitcom writing and this and that?" And within three weeks, I got hired to write on Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, a TGIF show. So I've gone from snide, mean-spirited, <laughs> edge sketch, late night to TGIF and F, right? right? And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just, I am taking one for the team here, man. But okay. And then I was also cast as the voice of the talking cat Salem on the show. Um, and lo and behold, you know, with all that sort of kicking and screaming, it's the best gig I ever had. Show goes seven years. I'm right, wrote on it for four, learned a lot about writing is whatever you think of the show, there's a process to learning how to write these things. And I was lucky to work with very good writers and, and mentors on that and um, just totally changed my path. How did the voice come out? I mean, how did, how did they pick you for that voice? Was it... I had I did a lot of voiceover work and I had already I was already doing a uh, the one of the main characters on a Nickelodeon cartoon called the Angry Beavers. Okay, uh, it was Norbert. So I had done a lot of that. And the, the, it, the thing about the Sabrina was not a typical pilot. They did this weird Showtime movie of it that was not a half hour and not particularly funny. But they used that as a prototype, and ABC bought the series without a without a pilot. So the voice of the cat was up for grabs, and I auditioned for it. And, you know, I had a little bit of an inside job going for me there, but I know what I was doing, and I got it. And it, you know, man, it was just, it was a blast, a really fun gig. Doing that cat was, writing it as well as performing it. Did did you ever sit there and say, sit there and go, you know what, man? Okay, this is a really funny idea. I'm pitching it for the cat. Oh, yeah. Because it's your, it's you. So, of course, you're saying. I was judicious, but yeah, yeah, you know. (laughs) But, you know, know, it's just one of those things. If you got a puppet on, on a show, everyone's writing for the puppet because puppets can get away with everything. You oh know? yeah, sure. So you're doing that, so then now you're getting into the sitcom world, and right. it runs for a long time. Yeah, and now you're not really doing acting anymore right now. Or no, you doing once it? in a while I would jump, I'd get a little clearance to go do a little guest shot, but I had been doing them over the years. I had done a lot of sitcom guest shots, but um, it just wasn't enough, you know. And so I wasn't that available. Once in a while, I did a '70s show where I played this gay trucker who almost, you know defiles Ashton Kutcher driving up a mountain and then has an attack of his conscience and stuff. So there were fun stops along the way. But yeah, mainly writing, you know, that's a full-time gig. So I'm doing that. And then after four years of that, I got hired. I was still doing the cat uh, coming in and looping it. But uh, I, I moved over to King of Queens. Okay. Now, now was the sports stuff all done for now? I've been doing, I did sports all the way through this. Okay. When we did the gambling segment on ESPN, the the football betting segment, that is, I think the thing people most remember, my wife and I, um, we would uh, sort of come up with whatever our little premise of the sketch element was. I'd watch football Sunday and look at every game where if you had a three-point spread or where, how you just had a horrible bad beat we could get some laughs out of. Um, I would write the script and build it to highlights Sunday night. Monday morning at the crack of dawn, there was a crew in our living room. and We would shoot the segment. They would microwave it to Bristol. And I would then head over to Sony and, and be at a table for King Queens at 10. 
Okay. So it was. I was always nights, weekends, mornings. It was always a la carte. Now the King of Queens. Did that? Did you know some of those guys on the staff? Did you know Ray? I mean, I mean Kevin, or did I didn't you know-, know anyone. I had. I. I. Um. I know that Mike Whitehorn, who created it, he was a fan of work I did on a short-lived ABC sketch show called She TV where I was in the cast, and then I did Rush Limbaugh and a lot of characters, and I caught his attention, but I didn't know a soul over there. Um, so the first year was, as it always is, winning trust, and especially with a guy like Kevin, anybody who's a seasoned stand-up, you know, it, you have to play the long game and win trust, you know, and, and, and it worked out. I, I had terrific, I had a long, nice run there, and Kevin and I connected, obviously, very well. Was it an easy transition from Sabrina, which is such a different show, and now, you know, I mean, Sabrina, you're, as I said, you have a puppet, but here, yeah. you're writing for Jerry Stiller. I mean, you know, yeah. you're writing for, you know, who's a, amazing, and then you're also writing for, you know, Kevin James and Leah Rem- yep. Remini. So, I mean, it must have... You must have had to grow as a writer just because you probably had to up your game because it's a different content. And you also have Pat Oswalt and different people coming on. You had to yep. change your writing style because you're writing TGIF and this is more edgy. But did you enjoy that more because you had come from a background of the? It was more this? satisfying. Okay. And you know, being a Buffalo guy, writing a guy, a big, you know, burly UPS driver in Queens, I, that was very close for me. Uh, but you know, I was still really learning the process. Um, like I said, I was a reluctant sitcom writer. And I swear to God, I think in the last six months in my career is the first time I have actually ever felt like I think I know what I'm doing. It is a constant learning curve. The other thing is it's the voice of your star, but it's also the culture of the writing room. And everyone is different. And everyone thinks it's the right way. So, you know, if you're lucky, you get to pollinate through a lot of different rooms and cherry pick a lot of really successful approaches and relinquish the ones that are a waste of time. And I've been lucky to do that over the years. But, yeah, the the change from writing Sabrina, and this was also really a, a matriarchy. Everybody in an important role on the Sabrina chain of command were female. And going over to King of Queens, an extremely male energy, very different Everything about it was a change, and you know my head was on a swivel for a while, and then I and then I, I eased in, and it worked out beautifully. Now I know you've written the Paul Blart movies. Mm-hmm. Now is that because you became friends with Kevin and you did, you earned that trust? And and who came up with the idea? And that's just and was that your first experience for writing a screenplay? Because it was going to be a first of all, you know, it's he's coming up a sitcom. Yeah, it's it's going to be a big movie. It's not it's not like someone saying, hey, write a spec for some independent, right. you know, right. forty thousand dollars student film. You're writing for sitting there with a star which are people expecting it to go you know you're going to get a turnout to start because right. people know him and they love him so i mean was that your first time writing a screenplay i had sold some and written them but they weren't produced okay. you know but this is the first time i ever had a star what did you write about on those screenplays were they comedies well were they- the one the main one was one of called the little lord which is about a bad boy broke british royal who just had to come to america and basically get you know humbled hard and it was a really fun script it just didn't happen, you know. But um, the way the mall cop thing happened, I was working on, I'd moved on, the show was over, King Queens was over, and I was writing a show called Till Death with right. Brad Garrett. And during that time, I got a call from Kevin's manager, and he's he had done Hitch and you know made a really big splash, but there was a little lull, just trying to find the right thing for him to, for his first vehicle. 
And he was working with a producer on a concept, and they brought me in for a couple of weeks just to try to kickstart it or whatever. And it was a terrific idea, but very un- unwieldy. What was the, the original idea? Was the security? I mean, no, no, no. This was a completely different so, idea with a with a well known producer director. And I was just brought in to try and sort okay. of get some flow, get something. I don't know, get Kevin in or out, you know. And it was frustrating to do this idea and the mall cop idea. It was one of those things where we're like five days in and we're in there and drinking coffee and sort of dreading the start of the process. And we started talking about a mall cop because I had been a security guard back in Buffalo. Uh, and I, the guys I met on that gig were so insane. Um, it's just such a strange little world. So it was close to me. And um, we had the gist. I mean, the gist of it is it's a it's a fat mall cop diehard. It's just all it is, you know? And we I think that thing sold that afternoon on that sentence, you know, with Kevin. It was just Sony bought it in a heartbeat and uh um you know, and, and it was not an expensive movie and it was very successful. Were you in the whole process and the rewrites or I mean you, it was you after you sat down, did you sit there and write it with Kevin or Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so you guys sat there now that must have been a great writing session. You must have just had fun because we, you just, we when we work together it's not work, I will say that. You know, it was really a terrific process and it always is that way. And um but we didn't have any idea how what what the movie would do. I don't think anybody saw what happened coming. But it turned out to be, you know, a really smart thing. Adam Sandler, obviously, also was very involved and co-produced it with Sony. And he was the one we were trying to figure out what level, you know, like of weaponry and bad guys and all this stuff that's not our comfort zone, you know. And Adam was the one who said, you know, listen, make this PG. And that was the best advice because what made the movie successful was, you know, you could go as a family Nothing in it's going to make you uncomfortable, and hopefully everyone laughs. That was our whole goal, you know, um, and it worked. And now, you know, in in a couple of weeks, we have the sequel coming out. Now, do the physical scenes come out themselves when you're writing? I mean, you sit there. I'm sure, like on on paper, sometimes physical doesn't read as funny. Yeah. And if you sit there, like when you write a scene, did you sit there? And I mean, it maybe just say sometimes you, you thought, okay, you know what. I know Kevin. I'm gonna I'm gonna make this over the top because I know Kevin will try to get it, and if he doesn't, it's gonna be funny getting him to try to attempt it. Did anything happen like that? Yeah. Well, you know, when you're writing together, the beauty of the deal is that the the star of the movie is there to vet whatever you're doing, and Kevin knows that physical comedy is you know part of what he does incredibly well, so he's very open to it. But talking about it and pitching the bits, a lot of them do live. A lot of them are as scripted. But in the first Mall Cop, you know, the, I think the thing that maybe sold the movie in the trailer more than anything else was that one moment where he does a slide yeah. to get him behind cover, and he comes up short and then inches his way. That was just in the moment. That was Kevin in the moment. That was not. A, but I think that was the, that was the moment that I, of the whole trailer that made you go, okay, I'll go see that. You know. Now, after it did well, and it, it, it did well, did you automatically think sequel? Just or did you? I mean, what was that philosophy? Because you're sitting there. It may. It went. Well, I mean, that's like anything. If sure, everything now is such a. I mean, when Fast and Furious came out, I don't think anyone would think that. Oh my God, this is going to be seven, seven movies, and now they're saying this one. I mean, when Rotten Tomatoes gives something like that an 85 percent from the critics, it's getting good reviews, and oh, you don't yeah. you don't expect that when you sing it. But for this, it it, it went well, and it, it is a character that kids are going to like, even yep. and it's a character that he's a bankable name. And also, it's just something that you can see 
fran- not well franchise, but did you sit there and think after it came out and the numbers were pretty good? Did you sit there and go, okay, down the road we're going to happen, or how that all come about? I I definitely wanted to do a sequel. You know, um, it was interesting. It launched a period of time where I was out of TV and focusing on writing movies for Kevin, and that was you know an interesting time creatively. But I'll tell you, the business of writing movies is just I would not recommend it to anyone. Um, in TV, you're treated like a human being, and you're treated like an adult. And you can turn to your wife and say, we're making this much money this year. In movies, uh, getting these studios to pay you on time and, and not stretch the payments over a decade, it's like getting De Niro to give you your share of the Lufthansa heist. Right. It's like it, is, it took years off my life. I couldn't stand the business of it. And part of that, too, was... You know, Sandler's policy at that time was we don't do sequels. He had never done Happy Madison 2 or you name it. Now, of course, he's done Grown Ups, you know, and now Kevin's back and doing Mall Cop 2. But there was this philosophy of the time, like, no, we have to go forth. So I was like, oh, great, you know. So And we did Zookeeper, which, you know, made a lot of money but cost a lot of money. But all in all, you know, it was a period of time where our output should have been triple. Now, Zoo- Zookeeper. And I feel like moments were lost there. Well, Zookeeper, you wrote the screenplay? or Now, did you have an impact of the story, or did you just write the screenplay? Uh, it was an existing script that I rewrote with Kevin and uh, Rock Rubin. And, uh, um, you know, every, every bit of that movie's DNA changed. Um, once we got on board, and I was there on location with him. Mean, that was two years of your life, you know. And it's a good movie, you know, and it tested through the roof. It was originally going to be released, I think, Martin Luther King weekend, which is when Mall Cop crushed it. And it tested so well, and at the same time, Sony had some big summer tent poles evaporate on them, like a Spider Man reboot, and Men in Black, I think, was the other one. They just got pushed. So they had a they had hole a hole in the summertime. So we got moved there, and we we opened the weekend between Transformers and Harry Potter. So it was just you know yeah. it's like oh boy we this is just we're going right down the anus on this one. So you know and we we made money, but you know movie I'm thinking made like 180 million bucks, but. Um, I think it broke even, you know, at, at that level because it was expensive. You know. Now, when did you find out about the sequel to Paul Blart? Was that after Zookeeper, or how did that happen? That was after Zookeeper. Um, you know, it just—it was like really. I think Sony wanted it from day one. It was a matter of Kevin and his camp coming around to, okay, let's do this. And the fact is, you know, um, even though it was incredibly highly rated movie by audiences here comes the boom did not land like expected so right. you know it's just it, it, it's what do you need to do to keep the ball rolling and that came around when i'm glad i'm thrilled if we waited too long you know people it, you got to get it well the trail is remotely warm you know um and it's a funny movie so um you know fingers crossed i'm excited that it's coming out is it easier writing it for him like this second one because you already have one under the belt so you know yeah. you sort of you know the character more now yeah there's a template for him and there's a template for the movie and you know you, it, it's always hard to write these things to your satisfaction but the birthing process was much easier now during that time i know you were, went to two and a half men for a little bit uh yes for one year now was that because you said 
okay, I'm reading your IMDb, and it says that was 2013, and it says Zookeeper's 2011. Was it that you were just sitting there going, I have to get back into TV? I, I or, was desperate to get back into TV. So, it's, was, it's so funny, you didn't want to go into it, and then all of a sudden, down the road. But I guess because it's such a, as you said, it's a, you know what you're getting paid. Yeah. It's a comfortable day. You know, you go in, your, your day is going to be what? You come in at eight or nine, you're done at whatever. It depends. You know, half hours can have terrible hours. But I will tell you that uh, working over in the Chuck Lorre camp, um, the hours are sane and it's extremely professional. We get in, you know, at 10. We don't do lunch. We don't see their privileges working with Chuck. We don't get network notes. On a typical half hour, you're in, you do some work. Um, then there's like, you know, a network run through at 3 o'clock. And that'll go for an hour and a half. And then there's an hour and a half of notes, and you're all just twiddling your thumbs. And then you come back, and then the notes and the rewrite starts, and you know, you're there till 10. Some people, you know, there were days on King of Queens in, like, season eight that I came home for breakfast. It was insane. You know, and it's just, it's, it's unnecessary. But if you're not at the wheel... You know, you go with the, whatever the, the boss man's approach to the work is. Sometimes it's people who are getting divorced and don't want to go home, but, you know, you're at the mercy of that. Now, we, we, when we get, I see my, I got a seven and a three year old. I see them at night. I get home to see them before they're in bed, and I work on a half hour, and that's a miracle. And so that's Chuck Laurie, because they know he goes in, he doesn't have notes, so it's basically he calls the shots. And when you Your guys day work- is, and we don't break, we work solid through the day. And uh, but you know he also no one's done this as much or as well as Chuck. Right. He just solves problems in an instant that you know without him in the room we'd be banging our heads against the wall a lot longer. But he's uh, got an and he's just definitive, um, and and the results are good. So uh, it's been a wonderful experience. And yeah, believe me, getting back to TV has been um, just I cannot tell you how much I appreciate being back. Well, Two and a Half Men, was that uh, Kushner years? Yeah. Okay, so now, was the drama lifted by the time he got there? I mean... It was, but you know, um, I, I've been friends with Eddie Gorodetsky, who's written on all of the Chuck shows. Right. Um, I go back to New York and Comedy Central with Eddie, and so... I was, I heard every blow by blow through him. You know, we'd have dinner every once a month or so, and I'd hear what was going on. So I was very fluent in all of the, the drama and the craziness. But by the time I got there, it settled in. Ashton is just a pro. And boy, I'll tell you, John Cryer is the consummate pro. You know what's amazing about John Cryer is, well, he's so damn funny. Yeah. But, he, you know, you think back, I mean, you know, you don't think this because, and young kids don't think it when they see. Um, two and a half men, but he was on a show. He was on a lot of failed sitcoms like The Fabulous Teddy Z. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think he was he was in something with Dabney Coleman, I believe. And I don't even know the list, but he came to that show with a litany of failed yeah. shows and and, and the think, movies. And Chuck, I think, had to fight for him. And it's funny because he he's so good at it. But yeah, I think back, you know, like Morgan Stewart's Coming Home. You think of like all these yeah, 80s movies. Yeah, and he was in everything, and it's just good for him because he's he's kept that character and he's. I, mean, I always joke. I, I, you know, I always put him to. I tweet. I go, you know, if he, he's he's broke, but he's always wearing a Ralph Lauren shirt. You know, and I'm like, and how's he getting these hot looking women when go. he's broke? I have friends who make good money and they can't get hot looking women. John Cryer is always hooking up with hot looking women, and I'm like, wait a second. And but his wife in real life is wonderful. Oh, she's not only beautiful, but she's absolutely lovely. I remember when she was in Good Day LA, and she was just it's Lisa Joyner, right? 
Uh, you know, you got me on Good Day LA. That's out of my wheelhouse. I don't know, but I know that they're back in the day when it's just a happy, beautiful couple with beautiful family. So, so did you want to leave Two and a Half Men, or what happened there? No, what happened was I did a year there, and during that time, Chuck was developing the show Mom. And that was during that season. And I had good chemistry with Chuck pretty fast. And he invited me to come in on a couple of rewrites on it. And then during the pilot week when we shot it, I was there all hands on deck. And it was just a really good fit. So when the show got picked up, he asked me to move over to Mom. And we have, so I did. We have about two minutes before the break. Because when I come back from the break, I want sure. to talk about Mom. Because okay. I... Uh, it's one of those things. Well, we'll talk about, but it's, it's such a great cast. I mean, you know, oh. my my girlfriend loves the show, and she's never seen a scary movie. And I try to tell her how funny Anna Faris is. Yeah. And then we were sitting there, and she was flipping around on a Saturday or Sunday. And there's an old Friends, and she was oh, yeah. she was going to play the uh, the surrogate mother. Yeah, and she has one of those voices where you're sitting there and you're going. I'm going. I just. I was walking in the kitchen, and I go. I, I think that's Anna Faris. Yeah. And we waited and saw it. And so it's just. Uh, it's a great show. Now, are you still doing sports stuff? I don't do any sports. Do you miss I, it? I, I, not really. It's interesting. I uh, I, I went f- and started to do stuff for the NFL Network, and like ESPN's very weird and territorial. I never really. It was always just a sidebar, but they, they, my ESPN stuff went away once I started doing NFL Network, and then that kind of went away too. I, and 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 I just kind of. I think I've done ten trillion eight hundred word articles and three minute segments and. Uh, I just get to be a fan now. I just get to watch the Bills and the Sabres, and I don't have to care about anything I don't care about. It's good. Is is that kid Acho a good linebacker the Eagles got? Oh, he's great. Okay, because I, I sit there because I know you got McCoy, yeah, and yeah. I, I think McCoy. Uh, it's just he can never get fourth and one, which the Eagles needed. Right. But everyone's everyone bitches. So he had one rookie year. All pro level. I mean, he's great. Good. And Chip Kelly obviously knows what he's getting. He's played for him. Well, okay, we'll be back in just a few. We have Nick Bakai. It's uh, at Nick Bakai 4. Uh, at Nick Bakai 4 Real, the number four real. And I'm at Cooper Talk, and uh, John DeCrosta is still in the studio. He's at John DeCrosta. <laughs> and isn't it uh, uh, Zebra Productions? No. Laughing Zebra. LaughingZebra.com. Check that out. We'll be back in just a few. We're going to talk mom, which if you haven't watched it, it's an excellent show. So we'll be back in just a few. It takes the police an average of 35 minutes to respond to a 911 call. In that time, a burglar could have his way with your wife, smoke a cigarette, flip her over and go in for seconds. Don't let the worst happen to you. It is vital that you protect yourself. Do it the patriotic way. That's right. Ammunition has all the equipment you need to protect your family from the evils of a liberal society. Fixed, mounted, and shoulder-held submachine guns, mortars, surface-to-air and all manner of heat-seeking missiles, and just in to celebrate the Gulf War, pink and blue tracer bullets so you can protect your family in the dark. Start the week off right on Make My Day Mondays with two-for-one on main, strafe, and kill landmines. Got Gulf War syndrome? Get ten bucks off all machine gun rentals. Hey, if you love your family, prove it with a gun. Ammunition, protecting your rights. New Normal by Skullshaver. How smoothly it shaves your head as well as your face. Look at how comfortably it reaches your neck and head. These five rotary blades will catch all the contours of your head and face. No other shaver can claim that. Skull Shaver's patented design will make you love it or your money back. Skull Shaver is the new normal in electric shavers. Available at Amazon.com. 
fine stores, and Skullshaver.com. Order now. You will love it or your money back. Do you love electronic cigarettes but hate the hassle of recharging and refilling? Well, now there's a solution. Introducing Zenny Cigarettes, the world's best disposable e-cigarettes. Zenny cigs look and feel just like a real cigarette but without the tar, ash, odour and chemicals. The best part? Zenny cigs are affordable, less than $5 each. Get your disposable Zenny cigarettes today at zensig.com. That's www.zensig.com. CaffeineLand.com, leader in transdermal patch technology. Supplement delivery directly to the bloodstream. Are you completely satisfied with your daily coffee? Try our caffeine energy patches. Use promo code RADIO10 for 10% off your order. CaffeineLand.com, that's CaffeineLand.com. Welcome back to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Remember, follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have about 360 episodes up. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. And my new website is stopthesalt.com. Go buy my low-sodium cookbook. It's Stop the Salt. It's Stop the Salt. It's low-sodium cooking for one without killing yourself. So check that out. And we're here with Nick Bakai. We're going to talk about mom mm-hmm. because, uh, as I said, first of all, Allison Janney is a rock star. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is, you know, you see her, she's just been around forever and she's one of those people that until mom I think she's sort of flown under the rain, uh, radar where people don't know her as a household name but then when she was on a, uh, one season of Masters of Sex she plays a very drama role and then she was yeah. on that and then she comes on mom and she's so perfect as just <laughs> that that just I mean it's so funny that show when you, when you break that th- the show down you're going okay it's about people who are addicts and we're awful moms yeah and then you watch it. It's one of those things you're like, ah, my girlfriend loves, you know, she likes another show on CBS, Two Broke Girls, which I can't stand. But she sits there and she likes that. And I said, well, I'll watch Mom. And yeah, you watch it and it really comes endearing to you and, it, and, you, and you like it. And even when Kevin Pollack was on and just, yeah. it goes different ways. And that's the thing. It's not, it's not like a preachy show, but they, they look at it. I mean, she's just, she's a bad person it's like she's like a i mean that's the thing though but it, she's likable it's like all like the tony sopranos and them this yeah. is a comedy where she i mean anna farris you like she's a she's a good egg but the mom is a jerk but you still love her and you yeah. don't think she gives people crap no it's uh, it's been it's i've never worked on a show quite like it because um it's really uh got an emotional core to it plus all those big big comedy notes um, but I, I, I've had such a great experience creatively on this show, uh, and 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 it starts with these two actresses. I mean, we, we couldn't have done better. Allison, I actually um, went to college with, and she and I were in like college plays together. Oh, and really? She w- it was evident then that this one was you know really really remarkable, and I've obviously followed her career ever since. And she's other than the West Wing, which was a big deal, and she won about eighteen thousand Emmys for that. But you're right, she is the she's the definition of an incredibly versatile actress who can do the heaviest material, and then she can come on our show and do the biggest broadest comedy and just slam dunk. And she does it physical, like the other night when. Uh 
her back hurt and they're trying to get her in the bed. Yeah. It's it's such a old pratfall, but yeah. just the way she did it, it's funny because well, you're you're thinking, okay, something's you don't think she's gonna tumble like that, and that that's the thing. I mean, she's is. I mean, she's a phenomenal actress. And I think she didn't she win the Emmy this year? She won the Emmy for Mom, and she was up for that and Masters of Sex. So if you want to look at someone with range, right. there you go. And because her her I mean her character. If you don't watch Masters of Sex, people, her character is married to a prof- a high up in a, a college, a university or hospital who is gay. Right. And that's the thing. And he hides his little side boys mm. on the side. And then she does goes from that where she just kills it. And then she turns around and does this. I know. She can do everything. The great ones are like that, you know. And physical comedy, she's incredibly good at. And that's one of those things that, I mean, I'm lucky uh, with her and, and Kevin. They're authentically funny when they do those things. That's a very rare skill. Um, it may be blasphemy to some people, but like a guy like the late John Ritter, who's obviously a wonderful guy, but on Three's Company, remember the whole thing was about him being this brilliant physical comedian? I did not get that. You know, you could see all his moves telegraphed and coming. And, you know, uh, some people think they can do it and it's brutal to watch, but these two, man, Allison's just natural. Well, for me, one of my favorite physical comics, and people, when you say it, they don't think it is when David Hyde Pierce was on uh, oh, Frasier. Oh, sure, sure. Because that was all underplayed. That was like how Jack Penny used to do the hand on the face but David Hyde Pierce came out and it wasn't over the top but no. it just it you watch it and you laugh and that's yeah. the thing now Anna Faris it comes off a long line of yeah. comedies so I mean that must be great when you know like if you see I don't know if you, if you see Scary Movie the first one basically 75% of the jokes work but there's a joke every five seconds yep. and for her I mean that, talking about busting your chops on a on a Comp- I mean, she was used to getting delivered laughs, so it must have been somewhat easy to write for her a little bit. You know what? It, it, it's easy to write for her and, and because w- when you're writing these half hours, as much as there is a real joke ratio that you just have to maintain, um, th- there's the best stuff comes from character. And she grounds the entire show. Her character, Christy, is the heart and soul of it. And Anna's amazing because, you know, Allison plays the insane, crazy mom. Anna is also a character who's capable of doing really wrong things, but you just can't not like Anna Faris. You know, so it's just it's it, it, we we have such an amazing. I've learned the power of casting on TV is everything, um, and and Nikki Falco is the casting director on all of Chuck's shows, and I've just never seen anything quite like it. You know, the, you you can write the best, build the best machine. Your writing staff can build. If you don't have the horses, you're doomed. And when you have these actresses, we can go from big, big comedy to tragic stuff on a dime. And that just that's an amazing gift to us as a writing staff. Well, now someone like Jamie Presley comes on. Yeah. And now is that... And I, I, I get a lot of character actors on my show and actors, and a lot of them say either a sitcom or drama. They come in for one episode, mm-hmm. and that's all they think it's going to be. And then... Someone the people like them, and they come back. Was Jamie Presley because she's recurring more now? Was was she meant to be just in one episode, or did you guys plan to bring her back, or what was her story arc going to be? Well, the, in the big picture, she did uh, a really great turn on Two and a Half Men the year I was there, and I think that's when Chuck really took notice of this is somebody who's you know really accomplished. But you know, doing multicam sitcom acting is a very strange hybrid. Because your eyes, you got to have truth in your eyes like you're on film, but the scale of performance is almost three-quarters of like doing a play. 
and it's a rare thing to find the people who can just own that. And Jamie does. And so, yeah, she was brought in on Mom for one episode. Um, but, you know, the idea was if the if these people come in and score, we'll bring them back. And Jamie joined the cast for next year. So she's provided this a whole new element. You, you know, you're still finding your show, even at, during season two. And the, the the team presents itself to you. And we just found that there was this, this group of women who are all in AA together. And we found some other notes that chime perfectly off of Anna's and Allison's characters. And Jamie uh, just gets stronger and stronger. And you just get her anywhere near a laugh and she crushes it. So I like I like the other lady, the... Uh the cat lady. Oh, yeah. And those, some of those scenes, and that's the thing, those Mimi, scenes, Mimi Kennedy. they're, they're yeah. over the top, but they're just so funny because yeah. you know, it's like you sit there and you go, even just like, there's a scene with a blender and stuff like that and you watch it and you go, that's, to me, that's what sitcoms are supposed to be. When I, when I grew up, you know, you watch yeah. a sitcom. And I know that this past week there was a seri- more of a serious turn because she took the pills. Right. But I mean, I think that, but that's every once in a while. But I used to hate like some like, you know, Home Improvement. All of a sudden, Jonathan Taylor Thomas might have cancer. You know, it's like I don't want to see that on a sitcom. And it's, that's the it's thing. The infamous are very special. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, <laughs> and I think that's what killed Half Hours. It's weird. Um, you know, back in the '80s and part of the '90s, they were everywhere. Um, and boy, has that landscape changed now. Um, but I, and I think that that kind of schmaltz without it being really truly grounded or relatable slowly made people resent live for multi-camera half-hour comedy and um so then it went into the glib era you know and that kept a few things going you know but it's weird mom is uh doing extremely well and it's we definitely have serious things happen on it, but I don't think it's what they call schmuck bait. No, it's you not. Know, these are really things that would happen to these people, and we get crushed in the room all the time if we go down any lane that reeks of, would would someone really ever do that? You know, that that's sort of the litmus test for us. It's got to be plausible, and it's got to be relatable human behavior. And I think those shows of that era just veered off into... You know, I, I don't even know what. It's like Norman Lear broke it, and then everybody ruined it by trying to follow that. And then, you know, but here we are again, and we, you know, we, we have a lot of emotional scenes, and we have people really fall on this show, and it, it seems to be working. It's strange. We kill characters. We're like a cable show. Right. You know, we're like House of Thrones. If you love this character, we'll still kill him. You know, um, it, it, it's 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 a whole different way of doing it, but I'm loving it. And now you're renewed for another season. Yes. And now when did you find that out? Probably this is a second season. This will th- we we will be we did our second season. Right. So we got picked up for our third in the beginning, and they, we found out before the end of the season. So that's just beautiful, you know. So now, what do you do now? And you know, we have a few minutes left now. Between mom, you've wrapped now. Mom. Yeah. Yeah. So now, what do you are you going to chill out for the or what are you going to do I'm definitely chilling out you know I'm I'm it's great time to be with the family and I'm loving it and we're going to go on a little trip you know and this and that but I, I have something I'm <laughs> this is going to be sort of hypocritical but I have a feature idea that I'm going to work on but it makes sense to me like the idea is work in TV and write movies as a pastime you know uh I say if you want to make your living writing movies then move back in with your folks right you know because it's just too crazy but there's an idea that i've had for a while and 
a lot of times you hit the hiatus and you're fried. It's 22 episodes and a lot of pressure, and you just let's put the gun down for a minute, you know. But um, this one, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not as I'm not fried. I'm actually kind of energized, and so I'm going to try my hand at this thing. I want to thank you for coming on. This is great. My pleasure. I've been I've been, I've been a fan, and uh, so. Uh, Mall Cop Two comes out when uh, the seventeenth. Okay, now that's that's probably do good opening. That would you know be Let's, good. Fingers crossed. Everybody go, and then <laughs> Mom will start again next September. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, Nick Bakay for real, and it's B A K A Y people. Correct. So look them up. Thank you. And uh, John DeCrosta at John DeCrosta and Laughing Zebra. Dot com productions dot com. So check them all out, people, and uh, follow me. As I said on Twitter, that's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, CooperTalk.net. There's over 360 episodes up there. You can email me, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. And if you want to do iTunes or Stitcher, just type in one word, Cooper Talk. It's easy. It used to be confusing when Anderson Cooper had stuff up with this talk show, but now I think I'm the only Cooper talk up there. <laughs> and uh, do that. And uh, what else are you going to say? Oh, my cookbook. Please go check out my cookbook, StopTheSalt.com. You have to eat healthy. When I got out of the hospital, I had to change my lifestyle completely. And now my cardiologist says I'll live till I'm like 80 or 90, which doesn't make Joanne happy, but she'll deal with it. <laughs> and uh, so StopTheSalt.com. The book is uh, 120 recipes. Uh, very easy to make. No pictures to intimidate you. The list of ingredients are basic. So you can be a dope and you can do it. Guys, if you guys got divorced, eat from this book. There's uh, there's a bunch of different recipes. And that's about it. I'm stumbling. And John, uh, John DeCosta, where are you going to be uh, next week? You're going to be... Uh well, I'm in Ventura this weekend. You're in Ventura this weekend? Ventura in the uh, Improv on Melrose on the 12th. And go to Ventura. It's a great little comedy club up there. So that's about it. Remember, follow at Nick Bakai for real. Follow at John DeCosta. Follow me at Cooper Talk. Hope the Kings make the playoffs so I can actually watch some NHL hockey because NHL hockey is the best playoffs. You won't get better. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. You guys have a great day.